a series called The Upside Down Kingdom in which we're exploring what Jesus says about what life is really like when you follow him. It's different from religion. We're going to get into that in just a second. But when you follow him, this is what life looks like. And it's what is called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today. We'll have a few things up on the screen, but I encourage you guys, uh, follow it along in the story, in the Bible. That's where all the context is. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. And like, don't hesitate to even throw your hand up because we got some people in the back who would love to give you a Bible. So uh, no shame there. Um, so Jesus has been laying out the last four weeks, he's laid out values, four values, and we're going to look at four more today and moving forward in the next three weeks, uh, eight values total that talk about like, what does it take to really flip the world upside down? Every good organization knows that you got to have core values to, to keep you on the right track, focused on the right mission. And that's what Jesus lays out here. He says, man, if you're going to be a part of, uh, following what I'm all about in this world, follow these eight values. These values literally are there to transform the world. Now, some people will look at this, though, and they'll say, man, this is just what every religion does. You know, every religion has a set of teachings, you know, some sort of a code that you follow. And, you know, this is the ladder, in a sense, that you need to climb in order to get what you want. You know, whether it's, you know, heaven someday or nirvana or, you know, whatever it is, this is the latter. I mean, this is what Islam does with the five pillars. This is what Buddhism does with the eightfold path. You know, this is what some people say Judaism does with the Ten Commandments. But if you look at it that way, you radically misunderstand what Jesus is all about. Because in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, he's not laying out a code and a ladder which we can climb to somehow find what we're looking for. It's so much different than that. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount may be the most famous of all Jesus' teachings, and yet the least obeyed because it's so difficult. I mean, this is, this is as far as Jesus is going to go with it. You ready? He says, if it was a ladder to climb, none of us would be able to reach the top rung. None of us. This is what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 20. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who were the uber-religious... This is the religious elite. I mean, if you were good, you would be them. Unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I mean, if you were looking for some sort of a path today to get good with God, all sorts of steps, you know, step one, step two, step three, to be great with God, uh, you came to the wrong place. Because <laughs> that's not what Jesus is about. It's, it's so much harder than that. Uh, but some of us, I feel like some of us, that's what we want. Like, we just like, man, God, if you could just give me a couple different steps, so, you know, to just be good and feel good about my life, then I'd be great. Um, no joke, this is what happened this week, for, or not this week, a couple weeks ago. Uh, anyone had to replace the battery in their smoke alarm recently? Uh, yeah, you know, you know what happens uh, when the battery goes off, right? It never goes off at a convenient hour. Isn't that weird? I don't know what it is. It always goes off at the worst time of the day. Uh, anyway, this is like right before bed, and we're, we're about to hit the hay, and the battery alarm starts going off. So, you know, I, I go try to go fix it. So I, I go to the top of the stairs in my basement. There it is. You know, there's the fire alarm, and I'm convinced this is what the, where the problem is. So uh, I do the first thing. You know, I take out the little battery, replace it with a new battery, still beeping. So I'm like, all right, 
This must be one of those that's like hardwired. So I got to get this thing off the wall in order to deal with it. So there I am trying to pull it off the wall and it just won't move. Like it's not budging, not even a little bit. So uh, I'm trying to pry it off, but it looks like the ceiling's going to move before the smoke alarm does. So I'm nervous. I call up my neighbor. I'm like, hey, uh, you got any thoughts? And he's like, I'm over. So he comes over. And for the next half hour, we're trying to pull this thing off the ceiling, getting nowhere. And then finally we pry the thing off. We pull out the wires and we're like, this is it, right? Beep. I'm like, what is happening? We can't, like, what? This must be like a demon smoke detector or something. I don't know. Like, we, can, we could not figure it out. And then as we listen a little closer, we realize that about 15 feet lower on the stairs was another smoke detector that had been going off the whole time. All right? Idiot move, right? All right, this is what we do, though, when we treat religion like it's some sort of a ladder to climb. We are focused on the wrong target. The total wrong target. And if you think that, man, God's going to approve you based on how good you are and your record, your moral record, you are focused on the wrong target. Because Jesus, when he lays out these values, he's not, he's not offering us a ladder to climb. He's offering us heart transformation. He's not out to change your circumstances or the circumstances in the world. He's out to change your character. And so he's going to say some things that are really hard. And the scary truth is that you could be the most religious person in this room. And be the farthest person from God. Because what Jesus is going to do is he's not going to attack what you do as if behavior was, was really the end goal. He's going to attack why you do it. And that's why, uh, you know, we, we journey through the, the and we're going to get to this in weeks to come. But uh, when we journey through the Sermon on the Mount here, you know, Jesus talks about not those who pray and those who don't pray. He says, when you pray, I don't want you to pray like this. I want you to pray like this. And so he says, it's not about those who pray or those who don't pray. It's actually something a lot deeper than that. It's your heart motivation. It's not what you do, it's why you do it. He's going he's gonna to talk about those who give to the poor, uh, and it's not as if, you know, you're in if you give to the poor and, and you're out if you don't give to the poor. It says, no, no, when you give to the poor, this is how you're supposed to do it. So Jesus is always going after the heart, always going after the heart. And so he says some crazy things that are just so counterintuitive, it just blows our minds. He says stuff like this. This is how he starts the Sermon on the Mount. If we think we're perfect, you know, this is going to blow it up real fast. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, in other words, are the people who realize they have nothing. They are morally and spiritually bankrupt before God. They've got nothing in the bank to go off of when they're in trouble and trying to get good with God. They've got nothing. Some of us feel like, man, as long as I'm better than this person, you know, God's going to approve of me. Not so. You've got nothing. All of us come into this room with empty hands before God. Nothing. And it's only those who recognize that they are completely bankrupt, completely destitute beggars before God, who start getting more of what Jesus is after in this world. And that's when it progresses to, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You can't mourn the brokenness in this world and you can't mourn your own brokenness until you realize you're a poverty of spirit. You're a beggar. You've got nothing in front of God. And the transformation in this too is that you can never be morally superior to anyone else when you are poor in spirit. You can never be morally superior to other people and, and project this self-righteousness on other people when you know that you're mourning your own sin. And then once you've gotten that foundation, then you're, man, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Meek is a humility. It's a deep humility that's seated on the inside of your heart that actually says, man, I'm no better than anyone else. And I'm not going to hide that. I'm just going to be transparent with other people about, man, I'm not perfect. There's power in that. 
There's power in that. And then from that, from blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, then you get to this place where, man, if, if you're in that place and you've really embraced that, then it leads you so naturally into blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And righteousness is not your moral goodness. It's actually uh, a right standing, a right relationship with God and other people. When you realize that, man, you're no better than anyone else, man, your hunger to know God and his goodness and then to extend that goodness to other people is off the chart. And so what Jesus is after in every one of these values is I want to change not just your circumstances, I want to change you. Because it's only a transformed person that's actually going to start really transforming the world around us. So that's the foundation for where we're going to go today. He's going to show us the next value. Today, our value today, the big idea is this. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, what does it mean to be merciful? What does it mean to be merciful? Now, I feel like a lot of us really like, initially on the surface level, we love this idea of mercy, don't we? Uh, one, one commentator said, uh, mercy is a generous attitude which is willing to see things from others' point of view, and it's not quick to take offense or gloat over others' shortcomings. It's willing to see things through other people's eyes and not gloat over them or take offense at them. And from the surface, man, that sounds awesome, doesn't it? You know, when we think about uh, relief efforts that go to places like the, the Carolinas that just got nailed this past week, you know, we think about those relief efforts, we think about mercy. It's a beautiful thing. Man, when we see other people going to the relief of those who are desperate and in need, we love that idea of mercy. And I don't know about you guys, but if you've been, you know, a, a follower of Jesus for a while or you grew up in church, we love the idea of a merciful God, right? A God who doesn't hold certain things against us, but is super kind to us. I mean, this is what God is said to be like all throughout the Bible. It says in Deuteronomy 13, 17, it says, The Lord will show you mercy and have compassion on you. That's who he is. God is a merciful God. King David, when he was in deep, deep trouble, he said, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. And Ephesians 2, 4, it says, uh, God who is rich in mercy, this is who he is. Peter said, his, in his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope. And in uh, later, a couple chapters later, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And every part of us, when we hear about a merciful God, we think, man, that's the kind of God I like. And maybe some of you in this room, you're not even sure if, if, if you think God is real. But if God was real, you'd want him to be merciful, right? Uh, I had asked myself, like, what, what comes to mind instantly when I think of the word mercy? Uh, anybody watch the, um, um, the movie Gladiator? Anyone seen Gladiator? It's okay to raise your hand on Gladiator in church. That's okay. Uh, look, um, <laughs> maybe for some of you, you're like, oh, my gosh. I don't know if I see this rated R. Anyway, um, Gladiator, uh, great movie, awesome movie. I love the story. Uh, but there's a moment at the very end of the movie where, uh, you know, he's been battling. Everything's really tough. And then uh, Emperor Commodus, like, he just totally stacks the table completely against um, Maximus because he wants Maximus to die. Commodus is a, I mean, terrible figure. If you've never seen the movie, Commodus is about the worst human being on planet Earth. Um, and so what he does is he puts Maximus in the gladiator ring and uh, trying to battle this, this gladiator who's never been beaten before. And he does it not only battling one of the best and former gladiators, but actually with uh, like real tigers battling him as well. All right. So, I mean, if you think about battling the best with a whole bunch of tigers trying to eat you, uh, not good odds. Okay. 
But the crazy thing is Maximus actually overcomes it and like he beats a couple of tigers and he gets his opponent on his knees uh, and he's flat on the ground and you know the crowd is cheering, I can't believe he did it, and they're all then chanting, kill, kill. You know, it's this brutal scene where all of the crowd is into it and they just want Maximus to kill this guy. Uh, and he's waiting Emperor Commodus's, you know, approval, you know, and he holds out this fist and he's either going to give a thumbs up or thumbs down. Thumbs down meaning kill the guy. So Maximus is waiting for it, and Commodus holds out his, his hand, and boom, the thumbs down come up. And we know in that moment, Maximus is told by the emperor to kill this guy. But he doesn't do it. Throws his sword away. And in that moment, the, chowd, the, the, the crowd is just shocked. And they start chanting, Maximus the merciful, Maximus the merciful. And when we see things like that, there's something in, inside of us that is, like, we admire that, don't we? In a moment where he could have exercised vengeance and the emperor told him to, not, like, to kill the guy, he exercised mercy. And everything inside of us, when we watched that, we're like, man, that is amazing. Mercy is a powerful thing. And yet, my guess is all of us in this room really struggle with mercy. In fact, I think mercy may be something that we struggle most with. Because my guess is every one of us in this room has had someone who's hurt you. Emotionally, physically, relationally. We've all got those wounds, those battle scars, and when we think about that person, mercy's a hard thing to process. Because this is the real definition of mercy. You ready? When we think about the word grace, grace is uh, giving someone what they don't deserve. Mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. And in our minds, if we're honest, if we're honest, we've all got those people in our life where we know, man, they deserve something bad. They deserve something bad. This is, I mean, there's, there's something, so at, at the end of the movie, uh, Maximus had, you know, he had, he had exercised mercy in that moment, and then Commodus comes in, and he actually tries to kill Maximus on his own, but he, he does it in a cheap way, back like behind closed doors where nobody's looking, he actually stabs Maximus uh, and gets him to the point where he's, he's like almost on his deathbed, and then he throws him out in the arena, and Commodus wants to fight him. And so it's a brutal scene again, uh, and for some of you who are, you know, blood and guts is a little crazy, uh, sorry about that this morning, but... Um, uh, um, Maximus actually ends up in a, in a crazy fight scene. He actually ends up killing Commodus. And in that moment, like when you watch that, there's something deeply satisfying about it because Commodus is a wretch. Like this guy is bad beyond bad. And when he kills Commodus, like it is, it's almost like you're freed. You're liberated, you know? Because we, we saw evil impersonated destroyed. And my guess is you've got a number of things in your life where you would love to see evil incarnate destroyed. Um, you, you probably resonate with this when you're, when you're going to Target um, and uh, you're trying to find a parking space. And it's like it's a madhouse at the mall. Anybody been there where it's just impossible to find a good parking place? Uh, and you're, you're walking down, you're driving down this aisle and you see a car start pulling out. Okay, and it's towards the front, and you're saying, this is my lucky day. I found it. You know, this is it. This is the spot, and you're waiting, and you did everything right. Like, you're waiting in line. You know, you've got your blinker on. That spot, that, that space is about to open up, but the car backs up the wrong way. You know what I'm talking about? Backs up the wrong way, and there's a sneaky young dude in a car behind him who's ready to just, like, jump into that space as soon as that car drives in. I mean, what do you want to do? When that guy sneaks into that parking space, like, seriously, in your darkest moment, what do you want to do? 
You want to slash that kid's tires, and you want to get one of those rogue shopping carts and just push it gently in his direction, see where it goes. You know what I mean? He deserves punishment. Wow, like, you guys think I'm like the worst person in the world right now? Okay, all right. Uh, yeah, I can go pretty dark sometimes, but like, come on, you're with me in that, right? Like, when you get cut off in traffic, you can go pretty dark sometimes. I'm telling you, there are some people who are really sweet people in this room, but you put them behind a windshield and something else happens, all right? We can go dark real fast in the car. Um, but man, I feel like God really just like, he, he, he put me face to face with a mercy situation this week. I'm thinking about it. Um, like there, there are plenty of moments in life where like someone who's, did, who's done you wrong, whether it's a boss who's abused you or a family member who's just said some really unkind things and you just like in, in your darkest moments, you want them to pay for what they did. Jesus, what he's saying here is that you're not gonna, you're not gonna give people what they deserve. Mercy is not giving them what they deserve. And the reality is there's some people in your life that deserve some pretty bad things. Like the way your parents treated you growing up, they were not there for you, they hurt you, they abused you emotionally, they deserve some punishment. And you need to know that today. They actually do deserve punishment. There's some people in your life that have really done you wrong and they do deserve punishment. Absolutely, 100%. But you know what? People of Jesus are marked by something different. And we're not going to give them what they deserve. This week, um, I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you, but I walked into a restaurant um, waiting to meet with someone. And uh, as I sit down at a table, uh, I notice a couple tables away, um, a couple people who had really hurt me deep. And when, when, you, when you notice them, and, and they hadn't noticed you yet, you've got a couple of options at that point. Like, I don't know if, if you've ever been there, but emotions start rising. And you start thinking, I got two options here. Either I can leave right now and just hope that they don't even see me. Or I'm just going to give them the cold shoulder and I'm, I want them to look at me. But I'm going to pretend like I didn't see them so that they pay. You know, I want them to pay. Like in that uncomfortable moment there, I want them to pay that price. And in the middle of all that, I felt like God was saying, I want you to give them what they don't deserve. And if we're honest, whether it's in your marriage or in parenting, sometimes uh, when things just get really hard, you want to give people the silent treatment, right? Have you ever been there? Like, you want to give them the silent treatment and you want to just like, you know, let them pay for the fact that like they did you wrong and you're just not going to say anything now, you know? And your silence is going to be that punishment that you just want to keep them in that torment because you're silent. That's what I wanted to do in that moment. And I feel like God was saying, no, you're not going to give them what they deserve, and they deserve something bad, but you're not going to give it to them. Instead, what I want you to do is I want you to get up, I want you to go to that table, and I want you to ask them how they're doing, and I want you to love them. I'm telling you, I went sweaty in that moment. I went sweaty. I did not want to, uh, but I got up, and I walked over to that table, and I extended some mercy to them. And the wackiest thing happened. God started actually changing my heart. And I knew that it wasn't for their sake that I needed to do that. It was for mine. That's the power of mercy. I refused in that moment by the grace of God to be ruled by bitterness and anger and justice. Because did they deserve something bad? Absolutely. Did they deserve the silent treatment? Yeah, of course they did. But God said, you're not going to do that. 
Why? Here's why. The way we relate to mercy has a direct impact on our relationship with God. The way we extend mercy to other people who don't deserve our mercy has a direct impact on how we know and understand and embrace and receive the love of God. This is what it says, blessed are the merciful for they will what? Receive mercy. Matthew chapter 9, um, Jesus describes this encounter that he has with a whole bunch of people who are completely undeserving. Uh, it's, it's an amazing story. Um, Jesus does not, it's amazing what Jesus does. He does not pick the people who are clean and perfect and have it all put together. He doesn't do that. He goes to the people who know that they don't have it all together. And so what he does is he goes up to this guy, Matthew, and says, hey, I want you on my team. I want you on my team. The problem was Matthew was a tax collector. Anyone know what a tax collector was? They were the most despised people of the first century. Because what they did was uh, they were Jewish people working for their Roman uh, conquerors, the people who put them in oppression. They were working for them to collect taxes. But not only would they collect taxes, they would collect taxes and then some so that they could pocket the rest personally. They were thieves. They, they, I mean, they, they, were, they rejected their own people by working for the oppressors, and then they collected even more so so that they could just pocket it for themselves and they became rich. And so everyone despised the tax collectors. You know what the tax collectors deserved? They deserve the silent treatment at least. They deserve that cold shoulder. They deserved a lot of bad things. And yet Jesus says, hey, I want you on my team. What? Makes no sense at all. And yet Jesus goes to a dinner party that this, this, Ferris, or the, this tax collector's name is Matthew. He throws a big dinner party. And, uh, and he, Matthew invites all of his other tax collector buddies. And uh, Jesus is there. And then at one point during the dinner, a whole bunch of religious elite come in and they're like, hey, what's going on here? This makes no sense. In fact, the religious elite look at uh, Jesus' followers and they say, why does your teacher eat with these guys? They don't deserve this. In other words, God has got to accept only the people who are upright and perfect and moral, right? Remember, the Pharisees here, they're the people who like not only, you know, read the Old Testament, but they memorized it and then like word for word could recite it. They were crazy. Jesus says something that is so shocking in this moment. Jesus said, look, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he says this, he says, go learn what this means. Go learn what this means. For I have not come, he says, but go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the righteous, not, not to come call the righteous, but the sinners. He says, go learn what this means. I'm telling you, this must have been the most insulting thing for the Pharisees to hear because not only would they have understood where that reference was, it's actually from the book of Hosea back in the Old Testament, but they probably would have memorized it and they would have been able to recite it word for word. And Jesus says, hey, go learn this. They said, you might have read this over and over and over and over and over and over and yet you have no idea what this means. Go learn mercy because that's what I desire, not sacrifice. In other words, it's not your perfect moral record. It's not your church attendance. It's not your Bible reading. It's not how great you are in comparison to others. That's not what I desire. You know what I desire? I desire mercy. Because until you understand mercy, you will never understand the heart of God. Look, churches have historically, in a lot of ways, at their worst. When churches are at their worst, they have been incredible, unmerciful places. I've talked to people this past week that have walked into churches and just with the looks that they got from other people felt judged. 
I'm telling you right now, we will fight tooth and nail against that as a church. We will. Because we have to understand mercy. I talked with one guy this week who told me that um, he wasn't there yet in his faith. He didn't understand what Jesus was all about, but he was willing to journey and he wanted to explore Jesus. But he noticed that some people that he would interact with who were Christians didn't even want to have a conversation with him. They were too uncomfortable with the fact that, man, you believe something different, you had different values, and so I don't even want to have a conversation with you. I'm telling you right now, if you feel uncomfortable around people who are not followers of Jesus, if you feel uncomfortable around people who believe differently and have different values from you, you have no idea what mercy is. You have no clue. And the reality is, on the inside of you, if you are uncomfortable with that, you are operating out of a sense of moral pride and moral superiority more than you think you are. And it is the most dangerous place for you to be. Why? Because you know what Jesus did for you? Jesus said, go learn mercy, not sacrifice. Because when someone does something, some, when, when someone does harm to someone else, they deserve something bad. Do you know what we did to God? Every one of us in this room. That in just living our life without any thought for God, by living selfishly for myself, not choosing to follow God. In the very beginning when Adam and Eve were created and they were given a choice, man, I can live for God or I can live for self. And they chose self and not God. You know what they did? Boom. They split that, that relationship with them and God in half. And there was this giant chasm that opened up between every human being that would follow in God. Sin. Selfishness. Entered. And because of that, there was this amazing gap between us and God that we could not bridge. There's no way that we could do it on our own. Sin actually destroyed our relationship with God. And in that moment, the Bible says that we deserve the wrath of God. That we had so offended God that we deserve nothing but his wrath. That's not a popular message today, but it's true. We had offended God that deeply. That we deserve nothing but eternal separation and wrath. And yet God, rich in his mercy, did not leave us as objects of his wrath, but came in the human form of Jesus Christ and actually died the death that we needed to die on our behalf, lived the perfect life that we could not live so that he could present us holy and blameless to God where we have no wrath on us anymore. But instead, when God looks at us, he sees his perfect son, Jesus. He died for us. Jesus described it this way. He, in Matthew chapter 18, he said, let me, let, me, let me tell you just how deep of a debt we had between us and God. Let me, let me describe it this way. He said there was a man, a master, who had a servant uh, who owed him millions and millions and millions of dollars. This guy had owed him a ridiculous sum of money that he could not pay, and, <clears throat> and judgment day was coming. So the master called the servant and said, hey, you need to pay me everything that you owe me. And the servant got down on his knees and he said, please, please. I mean, this, this means I'm going to have to throw myself and my family and everyone in jail. I cannot pay this. And in that moment, the master took pity on him and extended mercy and forgave everything. I mean, just to imagine what that was like, it, it'd be like you guys having a, uh, like $500 million of credit card debt and spiraling like a freight train, a runaway train away from you, like, and having it increase and increase and increase. Every breath that you take, it's just like more money you have to owe and more money you have to owe. I mean, it is a runaway train and there's no way. And the creditors are looking at you and saying, hey, we want our money. 
Some of you understand that feeling. <laughs> you know what credit card debt feels like. You know what insurmountable debt feels like. That's exactly what it was like in this moment, except it was impossible for him to pay. And yet the master said, forgiven, wiped clean. And yet, the same guy who was forgiven millions had one guy that he knew that owed him $1,000. And he went up to that guy and started choking him and saying, give me back every penny that you owe me. And the guy said, please have mercy on me. I, I can't pay this right now, but I will get it to you. And he said, no way. And he threw the guy into prison. Well, some people heard about it. Other servants heard about it. They went to the master and they said, hey, did you hear what just happened? The guy you forgave millions of dollars actually just chokeholded a guy who had $1,000 that was owed to him. Did you hear that? And the master said, he did what? And he went over to that guy and said, what did you do? You knew that I had mercy on you. How could you not show mercy to someone else who owed you a fraction of what you owed? Shouldn't you have had mercy? This is amazing. This is what he says. You wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? Now the reality is there are people in your life who have hurt you and hurt you deep. You can, you can remember the, the, the wounds that they've caused you even right now as I'm saying this. You remember mom, you remember dad, you remember bosses, you remember coaches, you remember peers, you remember a number of people who have cut you deep, who have rejected you, abandoned you. And the reality is they owe you. They owe you. You deserve something. And yet Jesus, what he wants you to know is that he forgave an infinite cost in your life. And so when you look at what they deserve, you're not going to give it to them because you have had an infinite debt erased. Now we have a platform to really love people and have mercy on them in radical ways. This is what followers of Jesus are all about. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. It may be, guys, that you don't get to feel this mercy, this side of heaven. But I tell you what, the glory of what it's going to be like someday when we're face to face with our creator who died for us and says, welcome home, my son, my daughter. All this is yours. Everything else in life is going to pale in comparison. But if you will not extend mercy to other people who owe you a fraction of what you owed God, you are closing yourself off from receiving that kind of mercy. So my question is, what kind of, what kind of reward do you want? Do you want the reward of just knowing someone's, you know, receiving the punishment because you've given them the silent treatment? Or do you want the reward of knowing that your heavenly father wants to extend you an infinite level of mercy? When I was thinking about this, there's one story that came to mind, and we'll close with this. Anybody familiar with Corey Ten Boom? Corey Ten Boom um, was an amazing woman back in World War II. Uh, she was Dutch, and uh, she she was she and her family were responsible for actually hiding and keeping safe a whole bunch of Jews that were going to just be killed and exterminated by the Nazi regime. And so they would just, they would hide people in this little hiding place in the back of uh, one of the rooms that they had. And, and they, would, they would take them to journey safely so that they could, they could escape the, the Holocaust. 
brave, incredibly brave. Uh, but at one point, uh, they caught him, and they took Betsy, uh, or they, they, they took Corey and her sister Betsy uh, to one of the concentration camps, and it was a horrific experience. It was an experience where Corey would actually not only lose her sister Betsy, but also lose her dad uh, and a number of other family members to the atrocities of the concentration camp. And by God's mercy, she would escape, but it would leave her with some pretty deep scars. Uh, and in the middle of all that, God had been working on her heart and actually uh, to, to not be a part of that injustice anymore, but to extend mercy back to the people who had uh, done her wrong. And so she felt this calling on her life to actually go into some of the darkest places of Germany and start preaching this message of repentance that God actually forgives us even for some of the worst sins that we have. And that message sounded really good to her until one day where it became very real. So let me read this story to you. She says, I was in a church in Munich and then I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to, de to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed to hear most in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins are thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. Solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People just stood up in silence, and in silence they collected their clothes, and silent they left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visor cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Oh, Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me and his hand thrust out a fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know as you say that all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He wouldn't remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands? But I remembered him. And the leather crop swinging from his belt, I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on to say, I have become a follower of Jesus. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear from your lips as well. Fräulein, again the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again and again to be forgiven, and I could not forgive. I know I had to do it, though. For God's forgiveness has a prior condition that we forgive those who've injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. 
Those who were able to forgive their former enemies, you got to read this, hear this well. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were also able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives. No matter what the physical scars, those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. This is so important. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. (laughs) And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. Help me. I can lift my hands. I can do that much. You supply the feeling, God, she said. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth flooded my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, my brother, she cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known the love of God like I had in that moment. Friends, there's power in mercy. I don't care who's hurt you. If you want to remain an invalid, you nurse that bitterness. But if you want the freedom of God, embrace mercy. And his mercy will race into your life. Let's pray.